Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you're listening to The Future of Media Explained. With me, Press Gazette Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford. And this week, the Press Gazette team are going to tell you what we've learned so far in 2023. So six months into 2023, the Press Gazette team here thought this would be a good chance to take stock of what we've learned so far and what we need to know if we're going to survive to the end of 2023 in the news business. And joining me on the Future Media Explained so far, we have Press Gazette UK editor Charlotte Tobit. Hi, Charlotte. Hello, Dom. And we have William Turville, who's our associate editor. Hi, Will. Hi, Dom. So I'm going to kick off with the big one that everyone's been talking about. The only one you could start with. What could it be? Generative AI. It's all anyone wants to talk about at conferences, journalism conferences this year. So what have we learned about it? And what do we think we need to know about it? I'll kick off by just saying, uh, personally, I think it's not quite as scary as I thought it was going to be because it turns out that it really can't do news and that a computer which sort of imagined what word should go in front of another word can be good at some very good things and can be surprisingly creative, but that creativity is not such a great thing if you want someone who's going to tell you exactly what's going on in the world. And I think that's why there's been very few examples of it being used in the wild by publishers, if any that I can think of, apart from BuzzFeed did sort of travel guides, didn't it? But and, and you seem to do that for a day. I've not read and so much quizzes. Else. Not that they're the same thing, but <laughs> yeah. So there have been some sort of more under the radar examples that were mentioned at a conference I went to, the Inmar conference. It's the one that immediately popped into my head where you talk about the fact it's just making up what it thinks should happen because, and you mentioned it on the previous podcast, but it's such a stark thing. Shibstead. And the fact that they've been using it to create summaries, but then every 10% of the time it includes things that weren't in the source material of whatever it's summarising. And it doesn't mean that it was wrong, but it's just not there. It's worrying. That's one example where they've tried it and they figured out that's happening. So it does make you think, how often might that happen? I think overall, generative AI, extremely worrying for publishers because of this idea that it's using an artificial intelligence to answer questions, answer search-style questions without any recourse to the source material. And also the fact that it's used millions, if not billions, of our words, of our professionally produced words, Press Gazette included, without giving us any money for it. So big conversations at the moment in the second half of the year around licensing 
I know the FT has reported that publishers are looking at deals to license their content to the AI companies for use in the training data. But I think much more important than that will be the conversation around copyright and tightening up copyright to make sure that professionally produced journalism is protected and can't be exploited by AI without any sort of links back or without any credit. And I think it is going to be a big deal. I don't think it's going to be the next metaverse or NFTs which we've forgotten about what they were. And that's what we talked about six months ago. I saw someone put it quite well the other day, actually, and that the metaverse, we all talked about it a lot, but it wasn't something that we were using or even trying out most people in their daily lives. Whereas with ChatGPT, like lots of ordinary people and ordinary journalists have tried it out. So I think that's the key difference. That's how you can see that it's going to have an actual impact rather than just be hypothetical for a while. Definitely a thing. Before we came in, I asked ChatGPT to write an epic poem about William Turville. Oh, and, wow. And it was uh, <laughs> it was surprisingly good. Have you got it? Can <laughs> we show it to me later? Yeah, That's incredible. Sure. I was going to ask, actually, if anyone, because we've written a lot about it, but I just wondered if either of you had used it a huge amount. I've only ever re- really used that kind of AI so far just to have a play around and as a way for looking into Press Gazette stories, but I haven't actually used it so much myself personally yet. Have you? The same, I've used it. I used it once and I did disclose it in the story and it was about ChatGPT to help me f- with an intro for that story. And then I said, oh, ChatGPT gave me this intro. What about this sort of thing? A little bit with other similar tasks, but otherwise not loads. I I should be experimenting more, to be honest. I know I should be. I've not used it, no, apart from to just get it to write humorous poems about, <laughs> about colleagues. The uh, latest edition of the British Journalism Review played with it and they've got it to write a for and against article about press regulation. And so, yeah, it's sort of done an okay job of that. But then I suppose there's so many millions of words written about press regulation, for and against, that maybe it wouldn't find it all that hard. But it would be quite a bland world if that's what we all we were reading. But very early days, isn't it? And it's going to get better. I think the key thing that always comes up is that even when, I think as you said, the biggest problems are going to be with copyright and with search and if it completely changes seo strategy because people aren't getting that that search traffic because it just answers the questions where people were initially panicked but i don't think they actually need to is it taking journalist jobs because obviously it can't do that original reporting so even if it does even if publishers do start to use chat gpt for some basic stories about information that's all already out there a lot of them so far do seem to be thinking well i can invest that efficiency into actual journalism because if say if they're a subscription publisher that will make more of the journalism that people will actually pay for so I'm not too worried in terms of jobs at least for now I realize that could be a massive famous last words moment well I hope not Charlotte let's talk about jobs stow jobs and um, the um, economic downturn which I think we talked about quite a lot at the end of last year going into an economic downturn and then this year we're sort of in one and I'll, I'll let you pick this up, Will, because um, we've seen some big casualties, haven't we, so far this year? Yeah, so I've reported on this a few different companies. Three stand out, really. One is Vice, which is making 23 job cuts in the UK. And in the US, it's going through a bankruptcy process, which is a far cry from its heyday when it was valued at $5.7 billion. Around the same time, BuzzFeed was valued at $1.7 billion and its market cap as of about an hour ago when I googled it was 90 million dollars so it's fallen a long way 
And as we know and have reported on, it, there have been big cuts there in the UK and in the US. It's also closed its US news division, which is quite depressing for anyone who was around 10 years ago when it was growing and beginning to produce some some really exciting journalism. So those are both quite sad stories about media brands that came around within the last couple of decades and, and really looked like they, like they were possibly a promising future for journalism. And then Older brands as well, there have been some cuts. DMGT, the Mail on Sunday, has endured some deep cuts there. We're not sure of the exact number, but the, these are those are three, I think, quite good examples of where we've seen those cuts. And according to our colleague Bronze, last count, 3,300 jobs were cut across the UK and North American news industries by late April. So it's been, it's been a bad year, and I think our gloomy predictions from late 20. 22 have come to fruition really i think it's a bit worrying isn't it because it feels to me i don't think it's anywhere near as bad as 2008 but i think it's similar in the sense that there's some bad stuff going on in the economy that's combining with some bad uh, structural changes in the news business which makes things twice as bad as they would be for publishers i think the structural changes seem to be uh, a bit of a traffic decline which is coming from perhaps changes to the way social media platforms are working. Facebook's turning off from news, isn't it, which isn't helping people very much. And so that's leading to a bit of a general dip at the moment, which looks quite worrying. We've not had enough results in because we're only in the first half, so we'll get the first half results for most companies in a few months' time. We'll see how bad things are, but it looks pretty, pretty wobbly at the moment. Thankfully, it's not all bad news. For example, I spoke to the chairman of The Independent last week, John Payton, and while their profit is down, or well, this was to the end of September, I should say, but as we discussed, things were already starting to go a bit wobbly by then, but there was no suggestion that it's changed massively since then. So profit was down, but that was because they were investing in like independent TV and their e-commerce and their expansion in the US, which is continuing, and their revenues were up and it's sort of continued revenue growth. And so just there are a few stories around like that where it's not all just doom and gloom. So it's just yeah. nice to highlight that. Their revenue's up, isn't it? And they seem very chipper. To be fair, they, so they had their own little round of cuts in November, but they're back in investment mode now. So as reassuring, maybe if others that are going to make cuts... And as long so as long as they're making cuts in the less profitable or successful divisions, and then they they are able to then reinvest in other areas, then overall it could still be a long term good picture. We hope. So we talked about platforms there, and I think changing relationships with the tech platforms is another big theme of the year so far that we've talked about. You you've written about that, Will. So where are we now? So Facebook sort of unfriended the news industry hasn't it yeah so it, it unfriended in fact i think we we may have even coined that phrase possibly i think we can claim credit i think we wrote that around 18 months ago that it was getting set to unfriend the news industry and it looks like it's very much done that in the us facebook news partnerships were ended earlier this year in the uk and i should explain for those not familiar facebook news partnerships is basically a vehicle through which facebook was paying publishers for their content that arrangement ended in the us earlier this year and the uk 
arrangements run until around the spring of 2024, I believe. And it looks likely that those are going to end as well. So yeah, Facebook not looking too good there. The wider picture, of course, is with Google and Facebook is that both of them are facing new legislations across the world that will mirror Australia's news media bargaining code, which essentially forced both Google and Facebook to strike licensing deals with publishers. So there's more more of that legislation on the way. Canada's going to be the next big test case for that. So both Google and Facebook have said if Canada goes ahead with this legislation in its current form, then we might have to cut off access to news and lots of threats going on there. We've got similar legislation coming in the UK, lobbying started. And so that's going to be a really interesting area to watch. Away from the legislation, so as we said, Facebook is pulling away from news. Big picture, it looks like Google is accepting that news is still important. So it's been striking some big deals. In the US, it struck a big deal with Google. And I think the Wall Street Journal reported that was worth $100 million over three years. I believe that's correct. May need to check it. In the UK, DMGT and The Guardian have agreed deals to join Google News Showcase, which is Google's equivalent to Facebook News under which it pays publishers for their content. So relations with Google appear to be looking okay, solid, like publishers are agreeing deals and these are deals which are years in length. So while Facebook's pulling away, Google seems to be, to an extent, embracing news and publishers still, which is good for the bottom lines of publishers, I'd say. And the other platforms I thought would be worth mentioning are Twitter, which there's been a huge amount of noise, hasn't there? It seems, I don't know, what do you guys think? I feel like maybe Twitter is fading, has faded in significance a little bit. I don't know if that's reflected in our own traffic and in our and in our own numbers. But I feel like I'm looking around and I'm seeing people who used to tweet a lot now are doing less so. So maybe in news, potentially it's becoming slightly less significant, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. And TikTok, I think, is the other interesting one. So lots of publishers have invested lots of money in TikTok, and now there are concerns about the ultimate ownership of TikTok. So I think the BBC is a really good example here. BBC, around a year ago, or under Deborah Turness at least, has invested a lot of money in TikTok which some people might say was a was a couple of years after it had gone really big. And then shortly afterwards, I reported earlier this year, I believe a couple of months ago, that the BBC had followed the civil service in advising staff against using it on their work devices. So that, that's going to be a really interesting and quite strange multifaceted relationship to watch. But I would be interested to hear from both of you on what you think about Twitter and TikTok. I think Twitter seems like a little bit of a kind of even less regulated place than it was. But for us, and I think we're a bit weird because we cover the world of journalism and news, which is very, Twitter's always been really popular with people in our industry. It's still a very big, important source of traffic for us. Yeah, I don't think it's changed much for us. Our colleague Aisha did some data about Twitter referral traffic and suggested that there has been decline, but that began before Elon Musk took over. So it's not directly a Musk trend, but... It definitely seems to have fallen as a share of social traffic and overall traffic. And so I guess that probably will just continue. I'm sort of interested just to see what the changing legislative background, you know, with the, gov- the government picture, what, what that means for sort of cash for publishers. I think if I was going to make a little prediction, I, I think there's going to be some good deals, I think, made between Google and publishers. I think Google's kind of probably content to pay a bit more to publishers to um, see off the threat of 
being forced to do so. Um, yeah, absolutely. We've seen it already in Australia where more than 200 million Australian dollars worth per year of deals were made with publishers. I think Canadian publishers are expecting similar treatment and then the UK could expect similar. It'll be really interesting to see how Facebook reacts to this. Could it actually just pull out of news altogether and just withdraw news from its platform? Will that just mean that it's a completely irrelevant platform or can that work in some way? But it certainly looks like Google is striking deals with publishers and will be prepared to pay big money ultimately in order to keep reliable news on its platform. That's what it seems to be at the moment. And it's interesting, actually, relating to your generative AI copyright questions. I think a positive of what you're saying there is that clearly shows that publishers are well ahead of the game, or at least in line with the game on generative AI, whereas you'd say that they probably weren't when it came to search and social media. Shall I just answer Will's question about TikTok? Yes, please, um, are you a user? I'm actually not, and it's partly because I'm aware how addictive it is and I'm kind of resisting the pull. I don't want to, you know, other social media are already, like, drawing me in too much. I don't want to get addicted to TikTok or anything like that. It's really a Gen Z platform. I know it's not just, but also it kind of is. Anyway, my point I was going to make was at this conference I went to recently run by Inmar, they had um, a couple of women in their 20s from New Zealand who started their own outlet called Shit You Should Care About. So basically, they're mostly out there output on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok, but they specifically said they don't put much time into TikTok. And they were sort of on stage with an expert, although a bit older, but an expert on Gen Z habits who said everyone should be on TikTok. And so these young women from New Zealand were asked, why aren't you putting much into TikTok? And they said, well, firstly, we just don't have that much resource, so we really have to prioritise. And there just isn't the monetization there at the moment, so we don't see that it's worth the effort and they're doing well off of Instagram in particular. I know that some people are now managing to monetize it in a few different ways. I spoke to the CEO of Barstool Sports quite recently, and, and they are, for example. But for all the investment that's been put in by news publishers over the past couple of years, I think for a lot of people, it's I'm not convinced it's fully paying off yet. Also, it feels massively dodgy, doesn't it, TikTok? It's just a sort of um, massively dodgy for kind of children and mental health and all that sort of thing, and then just massively dodgy in other ways in terms of there's no transparency about anything that goes on there, and the fact that it's owned by bodies with no, not maybe not by the Chinese state, but certainly kind of indirectly, they developed it, didn't they? So they're dodgy. So there's just a lot of dodginess around it, isn't there? Which makes it a little bit more um, uncertain compared to other platforms. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. So we've got two more themes. Let's cover off audio, which was um, still a big thing we're talking about, isn't it? Podcasts and and uh, publisher audio. What have you learned so far about that, Charlotte? So that's 
links in quite nicely to TikTok because it comes up in the change in preferences for audiences in that the latest digital news report in particular has showed to the extent that young people really like audio and video as opposed to the written word. And so it's definitely seen people are still launching plenty of podcasts. And it was interesting at the podcast show that it was said that it might be the end of the dumb money era in terms of investment in podcasting, but we are still in the early innings for news podcasting, i.e. we're not in a saturated market yet. There's still room to grow, which was interesting because in the digital news report, news podcast listenership is still a lot lower in the UK than it is in the US, where, of course, it was kind of initially driven by the New York Times as the daily. Currently, we have 19% consumption of news podcasts in the US versus 8% in the UK. So that is a big difference. So even if we just grow a few percent, that's still good potential, I think, for publishers. And also, digital news report did a list of what it thinks could be the 10 biggest news podcasts in the UK because usually it's quite hard to tell from the charts and I thought it was interesting that the news agents which launched in September with Emily Maitlis, John Sopel and Lewis Goodall at Global is already the joint top news podcast in the UK along with the rest is politics and the BBC's newscast so kind of shows that new entrants can still get to the top I mean they obviously had a lot of investment but if you put that in it's probably going to come off and just on that point about the changing preferences, actually, I just wanted to mention this is similar with video. Under 30s are most likely to watch video on Facebook, YouTube or TikTok, whereas the over 30s are much more likely to consume it through news websites. And overall, Gen Z don't really go direct to publisher websites anymore. They never did really. And the point was well made in the digital news report that the Gen Z aren't going to suddenly change their habits. For example, people who were around when mobiles first came out didn't then go back to the landlines just because they got older. So the same thing will happen if Gen Z never built that relationship with publishers direct in the first place. It won't happen. So either get them direct now or at least build a relationship, even if it's on Instagram. That's the start, I guess, is the point. Yeah, podcasts are a good way to reach Gen Z because they like podcasts. Yes, uh, yeah, exactly. Audio, video over the written word is is a big lesson. It's one of those things that people kind of knew already, but a lot of the stats and a lot of the listening, sorry, the consumption habits that we're learning about this year are really backing that up. And Dom, I, I think I read in your newsletter last week when I was on holiday, but still reading your newsletter, that you consider those Gen Zers to be lazy blighters for not reading. <laughs> Yeah, I did say that. I've got to write one of those every morning, Will. So <laughs> it's quite off the cuff. To be fair, my children uh, will listen to audiobooks more than read books at bedtime. If you think about it, though, thousands and thousands of years, human beings have told stories to each other, haven't they? We've only been um, writing things down and reading them in books for a few hundred years. So maybe that's just going to be a bit of a blip. Mm. And we'll, uh, podcasts will just continue that great long tradition. I want to say aural tradition. Is that right? Listening to things? I guess we could come to be seen as very special for actually being able to read. It's like people who can speak Latin, <laughs> people who can read written words. Exactly. One last theme was, we probably don't have quite a time for it, but news avoidance is still a big one that we were talking about last year and even more this year, which is the idea that lots of people are so sort of annoyed by the news or f find it so stressful that they're kind of avoiding it altogether, which is a worry. I think 
is something that publishers are definitely talking about, isn't it? So, yeah, I just wanted to make the point that it seems to be something that's affecting publishers in different ways. For example, I've mentioned it and you've mentioned it to Sky News and The Sun separately so far this year. And they've both said it's not really something that's worrying them or that they're thinking about. Whereas others, for example, Reach has had some issues with sort of pages going down and revenues and said in part it's due to an online attention recession. And one reason they said was about Facebook not showing news so much anymore, but will was discussion, but it's also about that news avoidance and people getting a bit sick of it, really. So I think it maybe it depends on your business models and what you're offering. I think the point must be made also that objectively speaking, if you look at a lot of online news, a lot of it is cheaply made. It doesn't credit the reader with a lot of intelligence just based on trending topics or just lifted from other sources and I can see why readers would get a bit annoyed with that so maybe um, when you invest a bit more value in what you're producing people people will avoid it a bit less controversial but then on top of that is often depressing if both subject matter and the way that it's coming out isn't persuading people that's a pretty big double whammy a fresh insight as you know so I should be having an interview with the founder of pop bitch Camilla Wright coming out on the same day as this podcast And we spoke a little bit about news avoidance and news fatigue. And she's obviously a pioneer of the UK news newsletter business. And in the newsletter space, you'd think she'd be very pro all of these publishers launching newsletters potentially. But she thinks that it's become quite an oversaturated market and that people and that publishers aren't putting enough thought into what a newsletter should be. And I think personally, one of the the beauties of the Pop Bitch newsletter is that it is just one newsletter a week. They do have another one for subscribers. But it's one one newsletter a week, and it's saying this is all you need to know this week. And it's not comprehensive, but it, this is what it is. So I, I thought that was quite interesting that she thinks that, I suppose, that publishers, big publishers probably look on newsletters as some kind of an antidote to news saturation, whereas she's saying, actually, there are so many newsletters now that you can't keep on top of them. I agree with her on that because... I sign up to newsletters I think sound interesting and then I never read them because my inbox is totally full and it's overwhelming and then you're like, ah, I can't read any of this. And then it's more stressful. Yeah, stressful. And yeah, it's stressful if if you've subscribed to a newsletter that you think is really good and that you have to read. If you don't find you have the time to get through that amid all the other news that you have to keep on top of, then that's stressful. All part of the issue, I suppose. She did have quite a good quote, actually, on Politico's Playbook newsletter, which she said was very good. I believe she said that it would be twice as good if it was half as long. So (laughs) that's another lesson. (laughs) Yeah, less is more. Okay, lots to think about there and lots that we've learned. I'm sure we'll learn lots more in the second half of 2023. You've been listening to The Future of Media Explained. Me, Press Gazette Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford, joined by UK Editor Charlotte Tobit, Associate Editor Will Turville, and expertly produced by Misha Frankel Duval. Leave a review, and that you can read a lot more about the sort of themes we cover on the Press Gazette website, pressgazette.co.uk. Music